Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode number 49 of Confessions of a Market Maker. I'm your co-host, Ray, a.k.a. All Day Ray, a.k.a. The Superman Lover. And I'm joined here by my nefarious co-host, former market maker of 20 years and current day retail trader, a man in repentance for his old degenerate ways, but at the same time, a man who enables my own degenerate ways. The man who's taught you how to think like a proper villain, JJ, how's it going? Good, brother. How are you doing? Oh, hey, JJ, I'm sorry. I actually have my computer on mute. You still there? Yeah, I'm here. All right. You doing well? Sorry, I didn't, I didn't I'm hear doing, you. I'm doing great, brother. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Not, not a great way to start the pod, but, you know, yeah. excited nonetheless. Yeah. Our guest today know. is a thoughtful young man who used to be an esports professional, a man who enjoys shorting overextended penny stocks, one similar to those that everyone's favorite market maker used to be involved with, a man who could care less about win rate and someone whose risk management style is worth admiration. I am talking about Brian Lee. Brian, how's it going, man? It's going good. I'm trying not to crack up while you're introducing me, but uh, that that's pretty accurate. I, I like that one. Yeah, man. I, um, you know, before we even started that, that's something I really admire about you. You know, I was looking over your past three months and you, you know, you went around maybe 25 ish percent of your trades. That's something that's very difficult for me to even handle. It's something I understand logically, but if I go on a string of losing trades, uh, I'm not going to lie. I get a little rattled. Uh, do you feel the same way? And how do you, uh, how do you handle this? How'd you, you know, overcome if this was even a struggle for you? Um, well, it, for me, it all comes down to risk reward. And I think I just got used to it over time. The, the big thing is that every time I win, it's so big compared to my losers that, um, like kind of the game that I play intraday is that I hide my PL and I always try to guess if I'm red, if I'm green and having done that for a couple of years now, and seeing how many times that I end up just being green from trading well and not really focusing on my win rate so much, that helped me internalize that I'm going to be okay as long as I trade well. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times, like, I'll joke around with my friend. I'll be like, hey, oh, man, I think I'm going to be right today, break even at most. And then it'll be a really good day for me. And I'm like, where did that come from? And a lot of times it just comes from that patience and the execution and knowing that I'll be okay just based on my system and everything like that. And I think with that low win rate thing, it's kind of uh, misunderstood in the sense that people think that I'm just losing like every single position that I'm full size. And it's more like I'm putting a lot of starters on because um, the way I feel about it is that in penny stocks, at least for what I'm shorting, a lot of times it's just quite a bit of manipulation. And so I have to be really ready to pull the trigger and cut if need be. And so a lot of times I'll just put on like a very small amount of size. That's why Whenever I win, it's I'm at full size, but when I'm losing, it's half position or less. And um, with that mentality, I just have no fear because I know, like, if I want to risk this, if I want to risk like, you know, thousand dollars, but I lose like three hundred, four hundred dollars, something like that in a trade, then it doesn't really phase me because you're used to whatever risk that you're putting on. And then knowing that, like, if you have four or five, six times that winner when you end the, end the day, that's something that's really powerful. And yeah. so I don't really care about win rate. I just want to nail the trade. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, that, that that's awesome, man. And I, you know, you're, you know, for the listeners, you don't follow this man. I, he's a really good follow on Twitter. You know, I mentioned you're, you're very thoughtful. That's how you come across uh, on Twitter from, you know, listening to your YouTube videos, you know, subscribe to that too. It's very good. Have you always like more or less been, you know, you, you're very composed, um, you know, thoughtful, introspective. Like I said, is that something uh, you've worked on? Because uh, it doesn't come naturally to someone like myself. Well, I think it's just because I'm very competitive. And so naturally seeing how the best players in the world at, at the games that I played and just seeing how the best traders in the world are, um, I just kind of model myself after who I consider to be the best. And those people are usually very level-headed, always thinking long-term, and they don't really blame anyone except for themselves, even if you know it's some kind of BS happens in the market or something. Yeah, yeah, no, great, great answer. Awesome answer. You know, you recently did an interview with Chat with Traders, which, you know, I, I was a little upset with because, you know, me and you were talking about uh, doing this for a while and I was I lollygagged on it. He got to you first. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I had COVID and whatnot, so, you know, whatever. But, you know, you said uh, there's something you said. It kind of made me laugh. But you, you said you were, you know, being a professional gamer, you kind of imagined what it would be like to be a rock star. Uh, did, what, what, did you have groupies? Uh, what do you mean by that? What was going on? A little bit, yeah. And yeah. Um, but a lot of it was, I mean, a lot of them are just male uh, fans, you know, but there's just so many, it's overwhelming. Because like, if you, if you just want to relax and enjoy the venues, because a lot of times we're in these basketball arenas, I want to walk around. Yeah. And um, I would just have a line holding me up for 40, 50 minutes where I just have to sign one after another. And I do enjoy that. But it's like, you can't, you lose your freedom because everybody knows you, everyone wants to get your attention. And so that's why I compared it to kind of being like a rock star, just you just get recognized everywhere you go and there's nowhere to escape that. Yeah, yeah, sure. Where, what cities um, did you travel? I know, I'm, I think you've been uh, global, right? Yeah, so I've been to lots of different places in Asia. Uh, my favorites were Korea. I didn't know it was so high tech and everyone's like really into um, style and everything. And then uh, China is really big because that's the dominant region in that game I was playing. And um, we've been to just all, all the different states across the US, but like the major tournament is held in Seattle every year because the company that created the game is based in Washington. And so um, they hold this really big tournament every year, which is called the International. And when I was playing, the first International in 2012 was worth like a million dollars first prize. And now people can make $30 million in first prize. It's really crazy. Yeah, it really is how it, uh blown up and I and I remember you mentioning on the interview with Chadwick Traders that you uh you know so it's like when you quit you, you stop becoming um when you transition to trading that's when it like was really uh blowing up but you mentioned you were just worn out which which I could relate to because that's how poker was really getting for me like I couldn't I didn't want to put in the same type of effort that I used to before what, what do you think led to that for you well Initially, I, I just wanted to play. I mean, when we, when we were competing, there was no such thing as esports. So, like, you know, you play for just hundred bucks, some Domino's pizza, and um, to know that it would develop into what it is today was just a pure fantasy. And so, like, when I started, I just wanted to attend this tournament so badly because winning a tournament or competing internationally for one million dollars is something that would validate, you know, anybody's career, and especially in the eyes of outsiders like parents and everything like that and so i felt like that would be the ultimate vindication of all the effort all the time i put into it and so i basically 
sacrifice everything I had, like health, mental health, family, friends, everything like this to accomplish my goal. And once I got there, um, I was just really, really happy. And when I eventually did end up losing that term and I felt bliss, I felt like weight was lifted off my shoulders, that I finally accomplished my dream. And then um, in the back of my mind, I guess I wanted a new dream because I realized that all the accolades and the achievement didn't mean that much if I was suffering in other areas of my life. And so I wanted to really work, take the opportunity to say, hey, I, I, I you know, gave it in my all and I achieved it. And so now I want to go and like experience what I missed or like make up for lost time. And um, for me, that was just, I couldn't really shake the feeling that I didn't want to sacrifice anymore because like my little brother at the time, he's 10 years younger than me. And he went through grade school and all this. And I was like away traveling all the time and living and competing in different cities. And I feel like when I stopped playing and I came back, he was already fully grown. And I was like, where did the time go? And then to me, that was just like, I really wish that I spent more time with him. So um, overall, I wanted to figure out my life and figure out like, you know, do I want to do this forever? And I think the answer was really clear. I didn't want to sacrifice anymore. Yeah. Yeah, man, I, I, I really appreciate your your thoughtfulness, your introspection. Um, and, and just for reference, what, what game? Uh, was it just one game you were competing at? Was it multiple? How, how, do, how does this work? Yeah, the game's called um, Dota 2. It uh, stands for Defense of the Ancients, and it's a very popular game. It's A lot of people compare it to uh, League of Legends, which is a even more popular game because what they did was they... Um, took what Dota was. So the reason why it's number two is because there was a game called Dota and they, it wasn't a supported game. So what happened was Valve, who was a company in C- uh, Seattle or Bellevue rather, they picked up the game and decided to like put it on a new engine, make it more friendly for the you know the future. But like they came on a little bit slow. So League of Legends got a lot of the attention. And so Dota 2 was just the natural progression of Dota and they wanted to make it a really big esports thing. So they invested a lot of resources into it to make it what it is today. Yeah. Yeah, no, it, it's neat. I, I mean, I've never played it myself. Um, I'm just, I just know a lot of online poker players uh, play, play Dota as well. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so that's, that's pretty neat. So I just want to give a reminder to the listeners, if you guys want to learn market auction theory, market profile, trade futures, trade equities, join JJ and I at our lovely trading community at microefutures.com. Uh, Brian, you, briefly mentioned about you know getting validation maybe from family friends etc I know for myself like choosing the poker route is like uh, most people didn't understand people looked at me crazy did you experience that with gaming as well luckily it wasn't that bad because um most of the I guess the judgment would come from people from the outside but I spent a lot of time indoors on my computer with people who get me so it wasn't that big of a deal but i think that it was really weird for people when they see like this asian kid on a flight to ukraine and everyone else is speaking russian i'm like i can't understand the pa and stuff so i've been in a lot of weird situations like that where people just don't like understand why i'm there it's just so random yeah you know how how well do you think gaming and and not just gaming. I mean, you, you gamed at the highest level that there is. I, I imagine it's, you know, similar to poker that the, the, the amount of pressure 
is, you know, it's high, you know, it's, I guess really any field where you're competing at the top, top level, it's super competitive. How well do you think that trained you for trading and how smooth was the transition for you? Uh, it trained me in a lot of ways because, you know, a lot of um, professional traders compare trading to sports in one way or another, whether it be the mentality, um, just having the resilience to get back up, introspection to go over your weaknesses, analyze your mistakes, even just going over like replays of footage and things like this, analyzing, getting coaches, stuff like that. And so being from that environment, I kind of instantly knew what to do coming into trading because um, the additional pressure of being a player was that I was the captain of my team representing um, North America as the best team at the time. And so you're not only playing for yourself, but you're also having to bring up your teammates, help them improve. You have to draft the strategy. You have to talk to coaches, management. And so there was like a lot of days where I had to talk with people outside of my team and my organization about the psychology of the players, about how to manage people effectively. And um, the great thing about it is that in trading, you're just a one-man army. So a lot of times in gaming, I felt that players weren't really putting in as much effort as me. Mm-hmm. And it really hurt our performance in the long run. Like, for example, when we were, we were boot camping for a tournament that was a $2 million prize pool in Las Vegas. So we all moved into the one house. And um, like after practice, we, you know, we, we practiced for 10 hours a day. And then after practice, I'm analyzing the opponents and like taking notes on my Excel and putting statistics and stuff like that. Things that transfer to trading in a way. And my teammates are just on the couch, just goofing around and sleeping late and watching TV. And um, I realized right away when I got on trading that this is awesome. Like I don't have to babysit anybody. It's just me. And so I realized that I had a, a bit of a core competency because I had so much responsibility for not only myself, but for others. And so I hold myself to a really high standard when it comes to perfection and execution and just analyzing myself and being a leader was definitely really, really important for pushing myself to where I am now. Yeah. Yeah. And it, and I know you just briefly touched on it a little bit, but I wanted to ask you and, and you know, for, I guess for some context for the listeners too, cause I think people might hear like, Oh, a gamer, like, Oh, must be the life. Right. But I know there goes a lot of preparation, a lot of practice going to it, especially at the level you were competing at. Do you want to kind of just give us like a day in the life of what it's like? Yeah. So one of the things about gaming and the reason why we ended up becoming the best North American team for a time was because in North America, a lot of the players and a lot of the people don't respect gaming in general. And so the competition here is very poor. So even if you practice for somebody um, in your region, it's very difficult. So what I had to do was we had to basically assimilate into European culture. And so I would have all my teammates, we're not getting paid a cent. I had to somewhat how motivate five players to wake up every morning at 4 a.m., 5 a.m. in the morning to compete against Europeans on a very obvious ping disadvantage. So we would, like, if you click, instead of taking half a second, it would take one, 1. 1.5 seconds to execute your action. And in such a fast game, it's like a very big deal. So um, we had to wake up very early in the morning. I made people skip holidays. I would yell at them if they, you know, didn't work on Christmas, stuff like that. Because I'm like, you know, if I'm doing it, why can't you do it? You want this, right? And uh, we weren't getting paid at all. And so like, you know, we were practicing probably 10, 12 hours a day. Um, each game is about an hour long. So once you commit to it, you have to really just sit there and focus. And afterwards, it's not over because then you have to analyze an hour's worth of footage 
and pick apart not only your own gameplay, but every single person on your team and your opponent, analyze them. There's a lot of statistics as well. So there are sites where we compile teammates' data and I would plug them in and figure out how can I counter their go-to strategies? How can I execute what I want to do? And there's a lot of mind games in that because um, every single team has coaches and some teams that we faced had people who were uh, people who were had the caliber of winning these tournaments or have won these tournaments themselves. And so there's a lot of factors that go into practice and it's not just, you know, living the life. We're actually getting really tired of playing, but we force it out of ourselves because we know that if you just practice as much as you can, once you get on stage, you know, um, something people ask a lot is, do you get nervous when you're on stage? Cause you're playing in front of so many different people. And the answer is no, because, you're nervous beforehand when you're when you're, before you're in the booth, but once you sit down, you immediately recognize what you do every single day, like the key strokes, the characters you play, and so once you get into it, then all your practice pays off. And it's similar in trading; you kind of get into that flow state in that zone, and nothing else really matters besides what you practice every single day. So it's very important that you build that muscle memory and that skill. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, muscle memory. Yeah, perfect. JJ, you, you staying with us? You uh, you following? <laughs> I am here. I am here. Cool. I'm just. I gotta say, this fascinates me. This whole video game thing. My last experience with a video game was I had a girlfriend. Her little brother came to stay with us. I bought him one of those PlayStation doohickeys, and it, he got me addicted to this this grand this driving game. Grand Theft Auto? <laughs> what? No, it wasn't that. This was way before. This was like 1998. Oh, okay. Right? And uh, the thing, that game machine lasted, I think, 10 days. And then it went in the garbage because she was like, what are you doing? Yeah. What are you doing playing this game? Right? <laughs> it's like, get, get, get over here. Right. So that game went in the garbage. That was the funny. Now it's like this huge business and it, yeah. it was always then, then, but uh, it, it's, it's quite fascinating. listening to you guys talk about this stuff. Um, yeah. Well, the, yeah, the competitive aspect of it grew and I, um, you know, Brian, I, you know, I'm very fortunate to have someone like JJ, like on my side and who I can like talk to and what I, what I think we've both learned about each other and, and, and I'm, you know, maybe I'm biased, but I think like people of like our generation a little bit younger because we grew up gaming and I think there's definitely uh, an advantage into like the strategical thinking that it develops in you that almost I think is maybe like more, more or less second nature to us, you know, coming approaching because, you know, the people that we talk with and work with um, maybe a little bit older, maybe people who have like regular jobs where you're not, you don't have to apply that same type of thinking. But at the same time, like me having someone like JJ, who's been in the industry, who knows the history of the stock market and just coming in, like merging both styles or both like ways of thinking, I think can make us like, you know, very dangerous, you know, people, to, you know, to come forward. Yeah, I mean, like <laughs> people, I feel like people are improving at a very rapid pace these days. I mean, yeah. even just starting three years ago um, full time there was hardly any resources on the things that even JJ talks about on the podcast. It's like, we had no idea about all these factors and a lot of kind of upstanding Twitter denizens, I guess they started posting videos and started mentioning, you know, Hey, this is what's going on. Here's a clue. 
And I feel like people just pick it up right away. I mean, when people ask me about it now, I'm just like, hey, there's a video for it. Whereas back in the day, we were kind of like grouping up on Discord at night and just trying to figure things out and like reading through all the filings and everything like that. Yeah. Yeah. How, how important has it been for you to have, you know, like you said, um, a group of people to to talk with? Uh, I mean, it's been very beneficial for me. I mean, what's what's your take on that as opposed to like, you know, doing it by yourself? Well, I, I am a very lone wolf, I have to say. I mean, I um, I tried the whole group thing and, you know, luckily I've been able to join different groups with people I respect and like and not have the envy of that and not know what if. Mm-hmm. Um, and I realized that at the end of the day, you need to have your own opinion on things. And for me personally, just a personality trait is that I'm, it's very easy to influence me, especially if I respect someone, because if I respect someone, I always give a thought to their idea. And if it's contrary to what I believe, then a lot of times I feel nervous in my position. And so I would rather lose following my own plan than to get influenced. And that's something that I struggled a lot with in gaming as well. And um, that's why in my profile, I have the Ralph Waldo Emerson quote about trusting yourself because that's the number one demon that I have. But I will say being in a group was very, very helpful for my development. And I, really cherish those days because the people that I worked with, we were all kind of on the same level on the same, boat, and we had the same dreams. And a lot of them are still here today, actually doing really well. But back in the day, you know, I don't think we could have had access to as many resources as we, as we did and as extra motivation as we did in the after hours and things like that, just discussing about our plans and reviewing with each other and just getting feedback. And that was like very pivotal, but I feel like at a point when you develop yourself, you have to just, take in as little feedback as possible so that you can have a clear mind and make clear decisions. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I, you know, Brian, I've definitely struggled with that myself. Um, and why I think I like relate to you on a level is you, you're a, you're a deep thinker, you're introspective. I'm the same way. And I think for, you know, people like that, some, we question everything, you know, highly curious. And so I think it's very, you know, but it's a fine line at the same time. It has to come a time where we trust ourselves and that's, you know, shout out to Kim. I know you, you, you've briefly spoke yeah. to her before. Shout out to her. She really helped me um, with that aspect, I think. So um, when we were when we were speaking yesterday privately, you said that the, this is the game to be in the stock market. Why, why do you believe that? Because I think it's just unreal how much money you can make in the market. And when I compare it to family, friends, even just my fiance right now, she my initially my goal was just to make more than her and she had a really nice um tech uh, gig in the in the bay area Mm -hmm. so she was getting paid pretty well and i was just saying you know if i could just match her salary i would be really happy because we would have a great life and through trading i was able to help her quit her job so she just she can just do whatever she wants and follow her passion she's a very creative person she likes to draw and, and paint and stuff like that and her job was really weighing on her so i had a lot of motivation to make money and you know, just surpassing all my goals and seeing how it can transform someone's life is really interesting to me because when I was, when I blew up my account initially, I was considering options like how can I get this account over PDT again? How can I even trade? And for somebody without a college degree, the options were, you know, do it Uber or DoorDash, things like this. And when I was just figuring out the numbers, it just doesn't seem like I could have gone back to where I was very quickly. And when I just compare it to everybody around me, I feel like 
the market is just such a gift. It seems like almost a life hack and how much you can, you know, put into it and get rewarded for it. It's just kind of crazy to me. Yeah. Yeah. I like, I like, um, JJ, what Chris said last week or what his mentor told him, either there's two ways to, uh, what do you say? Get rich or something like that. He said, either start a business or, or start trading. Um, yeah, I thought that was neat. That sounds like wise words. Uh, Brian, so how did you find trading when, you know, what was the, the alert it had to you? Well, I said that gaming was kind of like being a rock star in the sense that for me, I was thinking like you get so much adrenaline every time you play and you feel so alive, you know, being on stage. And, uh, you know, a lot of like musicians turn to drugs or things like that to get the same feeling. And I always felt like I had so much freedom. I could do whatever I wanted. I could travel the world and I get on a plane whenever I felt like. And so I was looking for something that could emulate that freedom if at all possible. And I also had a bit of a nest egg from just trading or from gaming, I mean. And so I was thinking initially of just getting into the stock market because I've always had a bit of an interest in it. And I always said, you know, if I had some money, I would put it in the stock market. So I put like hundred bucks into Groupon one day and then it just went to zero. And I was like, what the heck is this? So uh, my Robinhood account pretty much blew up. And then I was like, I want to take this seriously. So I started looking up resources online and of course I came across like Tim Sykes, things like that. And so I got really interested in the small cap world and um, I decided that I wanted to practice it because like while I was gaming, um, like I said, I didn't have any other options. So even though I wasn't as motivated before to be on the highest level, I was still competing at, you know, like if there's like an A tier or something, I'd be like A minus, something like that, a B plus. So I was still very capable of competing at these tournaments and leading teams and things like that. But it was very draining because, you know, I, I did things like I moved to Romania, for example, to play with this European all-star lineup and things didn't work out internally and people got really frustrated with each other and we ended up not qualifying for a very large tournament and I committed, you know, moving from home to another place for two months or so. And I was just like, this is so depressing. You know, I want, I want a way out of this. I want to get out at, and so I just started studying whenever I had free time and eventually decided I'm going to go study full time, paper trade it, and then get into the market as soon as I feel like I put everything I could into that time and just move on a little bit. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, and I, I've heard you talk about this too, that that having the amount of time to put to it, you know, um, was, was a big benefit. And I believe it was for me too, to be able to, you know, sit and watch the market every day. While, you know, it, it's tough for some people because they got to mix it, you know, between working, um, you know, and studying the market, especially if they want to go full time. And I think that's where, you know, we talk to people and really try and tell them, you got to understand like just the the path that it takes and to have that patience because, you know, have being impatient is going to force, you know, a lot of mistakes, you know, et cetera. Uh, so Brian, um, you know, as you discussed on the, uh, the podcast and you know, I mentioned before that you like the shorting, um, you know, overextended moves on, uh, you know, a lot, a lot of the same type of stocks that JJ would, would be involved with back in his heyday. And I'm, oh. and I'm waiting. I got some questions for Brian. Oh, I know you do. I know you do. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> That'd be the best part. No, I, I, I really, you know, I suspect this to be to create some good discussion. Um, you know, obviously, Brian, there's inherent danger in playing these. I assume that's why you emphasize such stellar risk management. 
Yeah, I mean, I, you don't, you wouldn't believe, I mean, maybe you would, but I get so many DMs these days from traders who started in 2020 and they made a killing and they're like, oh, I'm, I'm doing it. Like, what am I doing wrong when they lose like two thirds of their account? And I'm just telling them it comes down to risk management, man. I mean, yeah, a lot of these stocks come down, but you know, how come so many traders fail in general? What is, what's that statistic about? It's about the risk management and not only that, but I also try to stress the fact that, um, like just coming from a different perspective more so than anything. Um, I like to share that, you know, my win rate isn't that good and I'm profiting very well. And you don't have to believe the hype and that you have to have a very high win rate because what that does is that forces people's expectations into cutting their winner short. And so they have a very odd skew with the risk reward. And so they're always full size when they lose and they never take full profits when they're winning. So it just creates like this huge imbalance. And I just wanted to kind of bring light to that because I didn't see too many people coming from that perspective. And I feel like ultimately what that means is that, you know, if it's going against me, I'm going to cut it. I'm not going to add to a loser. I see, you know, there are people who get away with it or maybe it's part of their strategy, but I think for the average person, what would better serve them is just learning how to lose because, you know, there are days like even today where I felt like I traded very well and I executed as best as I could, but I didn't really profit too much. And so, you know, you can't really force your will in the market. All you can do is trade well. And the foundation for trading well, in my opinion, is just managing your risk. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Now, is there, now JJ, feel free to jump in. Okay. All right. I got to jump in. Okay. First of all, Brian, it's really, really cool to meet you. I am, I was a short seller uh, until 2005. And uh, the things we did to companies uh, and investors. Um, I mean, my clients had nicknames like the Antichrist. Um, and, you know, we do convertibles on a company. They get me to short it, you know, before they sat down and ran the financing. So, you know, they'd have a stock at eight bucks. I'd short it down to three. My guys would go and finance them at 30% chop to three bucks, fill our short, which I would hide in Switzerland. Um, then, you know, um, run the thing up and, um, we do all, we, we used to do all sorts of things like, so, because in short selling, all that matters is supply. If there's no supply, you got no short, right? So sometimes you got to create some supply. So we'd call the block guys and go, you know, ABCD, they're shopping 2 million shares and a 50% chop. So the block guys have loose lips and they'll tell all the retail shorts and they start hammering on it. Right. So, you know, you could get short and then the retail shorts would go and hammer because there was no stupid reg SHO and then you could cover, right, by creating some false supply. So these are all sorts of things that we used to do or if the deal had a bad promoter, you could just fill all the retail bids from E-Trade and then bully the thing down 30% and cover because the promoter would puke their zero cost paper into you, right? So all of these things, all the fun stopped in 2005. So. I think it's really cool that you young guys have this subculture of short selling. The only problem is sometimes when you don't know their supply, if there's supply, that's when you get yanked and that's why you have to have risk management, right? Mm -hmm. One of these days you sit down with me and I'll show you how market profile will tell you when there's no supply and it's the oh. freakiest thing. Oh, right? I'd love that. Uh -huh. Right. Um, it is one of the freakiest things and it freaks me out because, and also I used to engineer short squeezes, right? So what I'd do is I'd open a stock at five, take it down to two, get everybody short, and then open it at seven, 
and then buy everybody in at 10. Right. Yeah. So we used to have all, all this fun. Now it's great that you young guys are doing this. Where, how, where the hell are you shorting? Are you shorting from offshore? Are you using offshore borrows? Where you don't know. Um, I mean, they come from the clearing firms and that's the broker's business, I guess. I, I did hear from some uh, prop firm people that, that they were being more strict on them and they were the prop firm traders were seeing retail getting locates and they think there's some tomfoolery going on there, but. Well, I can uh, tell you there's tomfoolery for sure. Yeah. What do you know about CNS? Nothing. Should I know? Okay. Yeah. That's how trade settles called the continuous net settlement system, right? Yeah. You run everything through DTC, right? Like most people don't even know when you own stock, uh, you don't own stock in North America or anywhere. DTC owns it and it's held in the name of Seed and Company, which is their nominee. So, in this CNS system, in the old days, you used to move paper certificates back and forth. You don't now. Everything is electronic bookkeeping. I suspect a lot of people are getting charged for locates that aren't even locate, like they're <laughs> like false charges, right? I, I honestly think, because I hear locates are expensive. Now, I've never paid for a locate because any one time I wanted to short, I'd borrow some market maker's inventory so we could use that, right? Yes. Um, but like, what do they charge you for locate fees now? That's a lot. I've, I've heard um, different brokers getting really screwed over. I mean, for me, um, I would consider my strategy quite efficient in terms of maximizing each of the plays. So I'm not like playing it for 15 minutes and then leaving. Um, for me, at times, I've had it take 30% of my gross profit. Get um, out. Really? Yeah, but uh, these, days, these days, I was able to reduce it more. I'm just from an efficiency standpoint with my system mm -hmm. to around 15 10 to 20%. Um, it really wow. depends on the month and the opportunities, but yeah, it's, it's quite a lot. And so that's why, like when I came into the game, I was just really focused on the idea of having a three to one risk war because it's like you have to profit and then some, because it's not like longing. You have all these fees on top. And if you can't account for that, then you're going to be really surprised at the end of the day when you look at how much it eats into your profits. We need to sit down together. I can show you how structure is going to change your life and change and uh, increase your profits. <laughs> cool. Right. Cause it's going to cut down your, your bad location. Uh -huh. But that's really cool because I, you know, because in the old days there was no, no such thing as a locate or a borrow, right? Could we just sell whatever the hell we wanted in the morning, come back in the afternoon and cover. Right. And that's how we used to pay our rent. Right. We used to sell something, beat up some stock, and then get an early settlement check, which means you could like pull the money out of your account that day and go to the bar, right? That's, that's how we funded our lifestyle was just by shorting. And then they took the short game out and they took all the retail shorts and they made it so hard for you guys to do it. So are you short, like you just use regular U.S. brokerage firms and then charge for thing, things like that? Oh, yeah, yeah. They're, they're U.S. They're U.S. brokers. Um, I know some people did offshore, but... I never had to deal with that because I was able to be over PDT, fortunately. That must be really hard. And that PDT rule is just another thing. Too. That's, why, that's why we teach people micro features because no borrowing, right? No PDT rule, right? None of that stuff, right? And the margin's insanely cheap, right? Yeah, I, I, mean, I can imagine, yeah. That, that's know, so good for newer traders. It is, you know, it's, it's like the micro is great because it's like trading wheel, uh, training wheels, right? And then you don't get buy-ins either, mm. right? 
Um, do you guys are, uh, let me, let me ask you, cause I haven't been out there in a while. Are you guys getting bought in a lot these days? Uh, well, I'm, I mostly do intraday. And so you'd only really get bought in if, uh, you got margin hold. Yeah. Okay, or holding. Margin. Yeah. So not, now, not really. I don't think it ever happens. Do they ever loan and yank the borrow? Have you found that? Yeah. They, uh, like one of, one of these brokers that I don't want to name is like very predatory. They have a kind of an algorithm that depending on the price of the stock, it will change. It will fluctuate the price of the locate. So they create artificial uh, really? demand and supply. Yeah. So it's very, it's, it's an insane kind of game they're running. Luckily I'm not with them, but I've seen the prices just skyrocket within a second. Like you'll, you'll press the button, it'll say a price. And then when you, when you accept that you might accept something that's two times as big or something like that. Really? Wow. That's really proper ghoulish behavior. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's terrible. <laughs> wow. Wow. All right. So the good, like some of the good brokers won't do that. You know, most of yeah, them. Won't no, no. Yeah. No, no. That's really interesting. Cause I, I always liked, I love to, to see how the bucket shops run. Right. Um, because it's, it's always interesting how the game's the same, but the, the tactics and the technology, you know, they change and you guys are so on, on top of that, you know, it's, it, it uh, now can you, uh, like if you're trading and you're using like a direct access software, are you allowed to like hit six bids simultaneously? You mean like take liquidity underneath the best bid? Or if you could hit the best bid and everything under it, like if you yeah, can we, route, we can do that. You, yeah, you can, can route that. simultaneously, right? Uh, well, I'm not sure what you mean. I mean, we we can take multiple levels out if we wanted, but oh, okay. uh, you know, I'm, I keep it pretty simple. I know some people are really into routing, but it doesn't seem that big of an issue. I mean, I I try to think about it a lot. Like some people talk about dark pools and midpoints and stuff like that, but uh, I, f I find that whenever I throw them on, it just never fills. So I just use like very basic. Oh, okay. No, I'm just curious because well, see this, we never did this. And I was one of the first guys to use uh, electronics. Um, but the old days was all phone. So if you wanted to hit six bids, I took two phone lines. My partner would take two phone lines and you get to get a next. So you'd have to get, you'd have to call six market makers, right. To wipe out their bids or to lift their offers. If you're trying to rip something. Right. So it, it took, it was like, you know, it was like a symphony. It's like one, two, three, go. <laughs> right now it's you know it's completely different you guys are just clicking away like you're playing playstation it's beautiful you know <laughs> that's that's really nice right yeah that's mm -hmm. so that's what we used to have to do or you you know or what i do is uh you know if i was wanting to move a stock up i'd put somebody on the offer that didn't have a call and then i would hit knight or citadel and they would auto execute off the low offer and they'd get their inventory short. They'd hop to your bid and then you hammer them. Right. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it, yeah, we used to have all sorts of fun like that, you know, but uh, now with electronics, it's, it's a completely different game. Yeah. <laughs> it, it just feels really smooth to trade. I think there are a couple games being played, but for the most part, if I want to price and I see liquidity, uh, I can pretty much get it. Um, at some points, it does seem like they'll, you know, they always show fake size, things like that. But oh, uh, yeah. I haven't that's, really had a big problem. Yeah, it's, not, it's nothing. Yeah. I feel like electronic trading is still pretty smooth. No, that, that's really cool. I always, it's it's very fascinating to see how you guys are, are doing it now because the things that we used to do were completely, completely different. I mean, I used to, I used to rob order flow all the time, right? Yeah. Um, you know, because... <laughs> 
you just, you know, you just tell the, the wholesaler to call you and show you retail bids and you'd fill them. And then, you know, the, the people who are the, you know, the insiders, they don't care what the price is. Right. So they just need liquidity. They just want to sell their size. So if you sell something at a buck and then you can pound the thing down to, you know, 60 cents or 70 cents, they'll, they'll fill you at 60. Right. So you can sell short at a hundred thousand shares at a buck and then go cover it at 60 cents because you know that those people have there when, when people are desperate to sell, you got to take advantage of them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's crazy. Yeah. So this is really cool. I, I really like this because I have, I haven't, I haven't really traded. I did a cup two equity trades last December in under $10 stuff. And I thought, wow, the price action is really family friendly now. It's like Disneyland out there <laughs> yes, because when, because there's only a few market makers. And when it was, when it was like hundreds of us and there were like guys who were like pirates and all they did was rob order flow or, you know, and it was just dirty. Right. It was like, it was basically like being in a bar brawl, right. Every day. And, um, and every once in a while you would have to walk into a trading room with a baseball bat. I mean, that's just how things were done. Um, you know, but it's it now everything is completely different um, and it's so luxurious the price action because Ray's in the in the equities room and he's like hey check this out and I'm like wow that's really nice it's like luxurious it's like riding in a seventy eight caddy this price action you know it's nice and stable and just smooth you know it's really the markets really have changed quite a bit you know and uh, I don't know it's 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 really cool that you guys are doing this is this because I know there's a lot of people who short stocks and don't do well at it um, because they don't understand that you shouldn't be shorting when there's no supply. Uh, you know, if you see the short position is 105% the size of the float, um, it's generally means there's somebody like me pulling the strings on the other side and I've sucked all the stock out of DTC and created a fake short position. Right. Cause there's yeah. a reason you do that. Um, but yeah, it's just so it's it's really cool because everybody I know is like, yeah, I shorted it and I got eaten. I'm like, of course you did. Um, but it's good to actually, you know, see young guys that are doing it and actually making money and have the risk management and the brains to know, oh, okay, you know, like a, a stop is like somebody pulling you out of traffic before you get hit by a car. Right. <laughs> you know? So it's like, oh yeah, scratch, no big deal, right? And Heck, we used to test order flow all the time. You know, if you want to short something, you go hit the bid with 100 shares and see how it prints, right? If it mm -hmm. prints up, you know that they're price improving, right? Things like that. Yeah. You know, it's uh, it's really cool to see you guys doing that. It, it's uh, I'd, I'd love to sit with you guys and watch you guys short sometime. It'd be fun. Yeah, we, oh, I'd love to show yeah. you some charts and just mm -hmm. compare like how it was in the day and if the price action is still the same or the patterns and get oh, your opinion yeah. on that. <sighs> Well, but the thing is, we never traded with charts, right? Oh. We never had charts. Because <laughs> right? I had like six screens with like 20 level twos, right? So it yeah. was all just pure. I mean, I remember there was this one company, PETS, and uh, it ran and it, I don't know what the hell. My guy, we were short from three, it went to six, and then it went to 12. And my trader actually froze. Because, you know, we were, I don't know, our average was just screwed. And he froze and he couldn't pick up the phone. So I had to walk over the trading room and kick his chair, right, <laughs> to like get him to unfreeze. And 
And then I remember calling, the, you know, one of the guys who trained me at his own brokerage firm. And I'm like, help. <laughs> and it was 12 bucks. And he put a million and a half shares on the offer at 12 bucks. And he beat every single bid down. He just beat that thing down. We covered, we actually made money. Uh, <laughs> but it was, it was scary because, you know, we used to trade with no money in our accounts because compliance, <laughs> you know, you do things like that back in the day. Um, and so we'd be like, oh God, if this goes wrong, we only have like 13 days to figure it out, you know? So <laughs> it just, it's really, it's really cool to see that, that, that kind of stuff is still going on. You guys are much more scientific and Excel spreadsheets. I mean, good grief. We, we were never that disciplined at all. We were just, just. Well, you didn't, we have, you didn't have to be, it's a different. Yeah, game. yeah, exactly. Exactly. But I, that's what I love about you know, how you guys have applied the discipline to it now and you're making it work. That's really cool. Mm -hmm. that, uh -huh. No, quite, quite, quite. And then I'll ask. No, I just, I just thought it was funny that like JJ has so many stories from back of the day. It's like, I can't relate at all, but it's so interesting. Oh, well, that, that's, <laughs> why, that's why it is because, you know, I don't know of anyone else who really talks about these type of things and it's uh, immensely valuable to someone like us. Brian, because we don't have that experience. We don't know what these guys were doing and no one really talks about it. Uh, you know, it's, you know, thank God this guy feels like he has some penance to do for his <laughs> back in the day. So shout out to you, JJ. We appreciate you. Oh, thanks brother. Yeah. But, but Brian, I, I was going to ask you, you know, with, you know, like you guys were discussing with the, the fees um, involved with shorting, it definitely makes the strategy a little bit more difficult or you have to get bigger gains. It has to be more profitable. So inherently it makes it harder to profit from. Why do you gravitate more towards short selling than, than uh, going long? Well, when I originally started, I was primarily long because I had no idea about shorting or at least I thought it was the more, you know, cumbersome strategy because you have to get locates and have the right brokers like that. I was like, Oh, I don't need to do that. And so like I would always go long, but I felt like I was always in the wrong place at the wrong time. And I just realized that these small cap names are always just dumping off. And basically every single time I would buy what I thought was a good momentum trade, it would only last two, three seconds before just completely, you know, having a massive sell off and then just fading the rest of the day. And so like, I realized that um, at least in small caps, it was more profitable to be on the short side. And that's what a lot of the really good traders I saw were doing. And so I just kind of decided to learn from them and give it a try. I think for the longest time um, when I was starting, I refused to kind of buy into my own business, so to speak. So like now I very much, I treat trading like a business. So I spare no expense to get the tools that I need, even if they're very expensive. Cause I learned early on that if you try to cheap out and everything, then you get the cheap experience for your business. And once I started spending money on my business and expanding my tools, which included brokers, I was able to find more consistency. So like when it comes to shorting, it was just getting completely defeated on the other side and realizing that there's something there. And like, I have a friend who works at a fund and he's always going long and encouraging me to long, but there's a big difference between, you know, like a large cap name and that's trending versus these small caps that, are just little momentum moves. And even he himself only stays in them for them as long as 
you know, like the momentum is holding up, but he'll ex he will not hesitate to exit his position. Whereas on a long name in large caps like Tesla or something, he'll he'll buy buy along the way, add, keep adding, trailing it, even sometimes holding it over. And so there's like a big difference between the price action of these small caps and large caps. And I think I was just more or less on the wrong side. And it's not to say that you can't uh, be very successful and longing these small caps. There's plenty of moves and plenty of meat right now, especially since short side is getting very crowded. There's a lot of squeezes. And uh, the thing is the frequency is just not as good and I don't have as much discipline. Like I want to be fighting every single day for some reason because I can't control myself and I would rather lose than not be in a setup. And so I've realized that there's more frequency on the short side. And uh, I just felt more comfortable with the mean reversion strategy in general, because you can kind of identify like where is a fair price or where a stock should potentially go down to. And on top of that, you have supply from prior years, prior runs, um, manipulators, dilution. It makes more sense where the supply is coming from. Whereas with demand, it, you know, it only lasts as long as people are willing to buy. Like who, who could have predicted, you know, Bitcoin was just going to dump off or something like that. And I just feel like that side, while it has really high potential for incredible gains, it's just not something that um, really worked for me systematically because I couldn't decide how I was going to set a price target because a lot of times you have to kind of just sell when you get the opportunity compared to mean reversions. Like you just sure. wait. Sure. It makes, makes a lot of sense. Is there a float size that is going to be too small for you to consider playing? Yeah, I really don't like trading under 2 million flow usually because at that point it's almost guaranteed that we'll just do a short squeeze or that it's so thin that you're just very scared to actually build a position. And uh, a lot of times those are the plays that, you know, in this current environment, there's a lot of people getting to the market and buying to these chat rooms that pump and dump stocks and they know low floats are the ones to hit. It's something that's like, very evident it's very very much like popular on youtube in general just hey what is a low float uh these are so volatile you can make so much money and i think people gravitate towards that so i kind of like to look for the stocks that people aren't really paying attention to so that it's just easier um, on the price action and like you don't have to deal with this short-term momentum or even just massive short squeeze yeah no i i agree i i try and do that myself because it, it makes a lot of sense to me at least it did to me from like an edge standpoint right like i don't want to look at what everyone else is looking at uh get involved in that and like jj says i i enjoy that 76 cadillac price action real you know real nice and smooth where i have time to react that's why you know i, I wanted to ask you you know personally like your float size share because i you know i get i get a little nervous anything under 10 mil i actually for myself i get a little nervous um i know you're a little bit more experienced than me though so maybe um but that's me personally. How about short float percent? It is, is that a number that you, you keep track of? I, I used to track it, but I stopped because the way I think about trading right now is like I have a certain edge and the faster I can react to plays, the better. So I kind of cut out all the things that were not important to me. And short float was something that I couldn't get very quickly. And so I'd rather gather the quick information build like my bias generally and do that within a couple of seconds if not instantly and so like all the tools i have are just built towards identifying um what stats i think are important i do i do think there's something to be said about it but i've never really had to pay attention to it because i feel like once i started shorting i was a lot more consistent 
Yeah. And so yeah. uh, for me is like, I just, you know, it, it, it's something where I feel like it can be outdated or, you know, things like how you said the float under 10 million, you feel like that might be difficult, but like you also have to factor in maybe the filings aren't updated or they're diluting. So adding shares, adding supply yeah. or that, you know, it could, it could grow further than is represented. <laughs> <He's> la- <laughs> yes. When Larry, the liquidator is in the house, definitely, definitely. Well, the thing is we would never, when we did deals and I've done 200 of these things, um, you, we would never disclose what the float was, you know, uh, just to keep, you know, people would be like, well, what's the float? Fuck you. Right. That's they're like, <laughs> what do you need to know? What are you a cop? Get out of here. Right. Um, so yeah, it's really funny now because I look at these, some of these things and, and the, some of the things I used to do, like when I'd engineer a deal, I'd make some, some of the deals I did, I, I have a short position that was bigger than the float. Right. Um, and that way I could just, you know, the stock was on a string, you know, I could get people to follow price down, get them caught in bad location and then just rip it. Um, and it was like a yo-yo. You just play with you know, with traders mm-hmm. all day. Um, but it's, it's, yeah, the, to get that information quickly, this is one thing that's really cool too, that I find with you guys is that you, you and Ray, like I like to trade the same thing every day, but mind you, I'm an old man now, but you and Ray, um, you know, you're always trading like a flavor of the day kind of thing. And it's, it's really cool how you guys can adapt to the order flow of the day. Cause every stock trades differently, right? Every stock, it's just like every, like all women are different. Every woman is different. So they're going to, they're going to act very, very differently depending on the float, who owns it, where the institutional ownership is, where the inventory is, all that sort of thing. Uh, if it's a Canadian deal, then you know they're diluting for sure, because we're pumping zero cost S8 paper into the into the float every day. Um, you know, so it's it's really interesting that you don't even use that. And I think if you guys have good risk and a good edge, uh, you can cut down that information sort of parallel, you know, paralysis thing. Mm-hmm. You know, because that's I found that when I started retail trading, that was hard because there's so much information. And you, by the time you digest all the information, yeah, damn, I missed the trade. You know, <laughs> you know like a, a tip I would have for you, Ray, is like, I used to pay a lot of attention to those things, but I found that what really helps me identify like kind of what the float is or how the stock will move is more like on the level two, just seeing how much size there is. And, um, you know, something could say it has a very large float, but if you see the offers are super thin or the bids are really thin and they can skip really quickly, then I'm going to be a lot more, you know, hesitant to be in that play. And if something says it's a low flow and I see it's really thick, then yeah. sometimes I, you know, I just don't trust the numbers. I want to see it to confirm what I think. And sometimes if I think one thing and I see more price action um, in that regard, then I know it's probably not true or, you know, something's going on, but more or less I can look at the level two and figure out what the float is for myself pretty much. Right. Right. Now. Oh, quick question. Okay. So when you're saying thick, are you, you're more, you're more coming into a market that has multiple, multiple bids and offers, right? And has showing mm-hmm. size and that sort of thing. That's what you're meaning by thick? Yeah. Like to, okay. today there was a stock um, where it had, you know, hundreds of thousands of bids on, and offers like beneath. And the way I think about it is I'm mostly concerned with myself, not so much other market participants. So if I can get my, if I can get a full size position for myself and 
not have so much slippage on the way out or or no slippage virtually at all then for me that's tradable whereas okay. if some if i look at it and i'm like okay if i build a position right now the it's not going to support me getting out if i need to get at one exact exactly. price exactly so that, right for me that's like very important cool and do you ever look at number of trades in the deal uh no T- check it out sometime check it <laughs> check it out if you look at the number of trades for for that stock it'll help you with liquidity because the more mm. the more trades the more traders are in there right and there's more sheep right mm-hmm. so it's just a little trick if you because i used to always look at that the most liquid stuff you know like well when i trained those guys who actually were like a virus um you know they do 50 100 200,000 trades in a stock in a penny stock right mm. and we'd crank 150 million dollars worth of dollar volume in a day right mm. so we crank 150 million uh my job is to make sure we liquidate at least 30 i'll say 40 to 50 percent of that so out of that 150 million i have to have you know 50 percent, at least 60 70 million in cash in the accounts by the end of the day <laughs> Right. Yeah, I, I that, remember you saying that. I, I kept that right. in mind. So yeah. So look at the number of trades because if it's thick, uh, that that means there's a little bit more liquidity, and that that's that's a really cool thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, especially if I, I don't know if you're playing like OTC markets. Do you ever even touch that crap, or is it all? No, because uh, I never got into OTC just because by the point when I was getting it, people were saying it's kind of dying. But I, I heard no that liquidity. it's getting a little bit of resurgence right now. I mean, some some people get away with it, but like I wanted a scalable strategy. So the Nasdaq. Oh yeah, yeah. you could be thick that. No, no. And the OTC market stuff is uh, there's no the game's gone because they don't let uh, stock promoters deposit stock anywhere. None of the mm-hmm. brokerage firms will take it, so it it shut that game down. It's uh, but yeah, Nasdaq's really cool. Nasdaq's fun because you can generate like a good Nasdaq deal. These guys will they'll 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 kick three four hundred million dollars a week, right? Mm-hmm. um in in just pure sales right i mean are you familiar with how they're trading right now like we've had a stock with a billion volume done on the day yeah yeah it's no not- no there's beautiful i look at this dollar volume like because i come back in the room and raise like look at this look at this and i'm like dang man i want to do a deal again right <laughs> i wouldn't i wouldn't mind pulling half of you know 500 million in nine days right i mean you know, you see that and like people are buying anything now. They're buying Halloween costumes for their pets. You know, you can sell them anything. They'll buy it. Low interest rates, brother, right? Freaking <laughs> financing, right? Everyone's buying. You got companies that lose three, four billion dollars with a $40 price tag on it. You know, in the old days, that's called a bankruptcy if you lose $4 billion, mm-hmm. right? Now you take it public and sell that crap to investors. So I look at this dollar volume and I'm like, oh my God, I wish I had 400 million shares or something just to lob into this market. You know, it it just just makes you want to go back to the dark side. It's very hard. (laughs) Could you go back if you wanted to? No, man, I got a bad heart. Uh, Uh, No, and I like, I like helping people. It's, uh, it's like the karma credit plan. hmm. You know, um, it, it, it feels better. It feels better because unfortunately, I trained a bunch of young guys and uh, they turned out to be like a virus in the markets and went and stole. I taught them everything I know and they stole billions. Um, 
So <laughs> I got a lot of repentance. <laughs> I was kind of like Dr. Frankenstein. <laughs> and hence uh, confessions. Uh, <laughs> but, right. Uh, Brian, and I'm, I'm pretty sure I've mentioned this on, on the podcast before. I, you know, coming from a poker background, an online poker background, I, you know, when I'm playing, playing multiple tables, you know, highly engaged uh, I assume video games is, you know, similar-ish. Did you ever have a problem with being too active during the day? And then, you know, uh, how active are you currently during the trading day? Uh, what do you mean by like? Well, I guess like trade, uh, maybe trade-wise, like uh, is there maybe one only like, you know, because I know certain traders make a majority of their trades during one time frame. Others are trading throughout the whole day. Uh, you know, what's kind of... Oh. Big- yeah, I like to trade the entire day. Uh, but the trick that I do is part of my system is napping, which I didn't get to do today. But usually I'll enter my position. And since I'm position trading and mean reverting, a lot of times it, it does take a couple hours. Okay. And so, uh, I mean, it's not always going to take hours. Sometimes it'll be pretty quick, but for the most part, it does take a long time. And so I just take a nap and I'll set alerts and have my stops out. Um, I try not to sleep too long. So I have, I have it down to a science. So I don't, I, as soon as I get ready for bed, I put a 45 minute uh, timer on my watch, not my phone. Cause on the Apple watch, it actually vibrates. So it's haptic feedback's a lot easier <laughs> to wake up yeah. and I'm a heavy sleeper. Uh, and then, <laughs> and that way, that way you don't go into REM sleep. So like a lot of times people go, go into a deeper sleep, they have dreams potentially, and then you wake up really tired. But with this exact amount of time, I'm able to wake up refreshed and be able to like, you know, get through a certain amount of day. Cause sometimes if I don't sleep, sometimes I, I'll watch it around my price target. I'm like, Oh, I got to take it right now. But when I'm sleeping, I just put the order out. A lot of times it'll hit and that, that's really awesome. So like a lot of times I just feel like if I wasn't even there, I would trade better and not being around is easy when you're just sleeping. Cause I'm already tired as, as heck anyway. Yeah. And, uh, and another thing that it does for me is that while I'm sleeping, I'm able to reflect on the entries that I did in the day. So I kind of like run it through my head and I think about like what could I, I could do better. And it's so boring that it puts me to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, um, yeah. I, f- I find myself, you know, and, and I don't know if this is coming, you know, I was talking to another poker player who, who trades and he, he had this similar issue is that he, you know, I don't want to miss anything. You know, like I want to be in front of the screen the whole time. It's like that, that concept of like, if you know, if you feel like you have an edge, uh, you, you want to be there as much times. So like I was telling you, my, like, like on poker, it's like volume is king. The amount of hands you get in is to make up for variance. But I think maybe that's not a, a fair comparison over, you know, bringing it over to the market at times. I think it could be a fine line. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, go ahead. You want to, yeah, if you want to comment. Yeah, I mean, I, I trade a lot. And, but the thing is I don't trade actively that much within my positions. And yeah. part of it is to my own fault in that I will improve in the future is that like, I'm not that good at re-entering. Um, whereas some people they call recyclings where you, you know, you cover on washes and then you re-add on pops. Uh, the way that it would look for me is if I cover on the wash, I would re-add it back right away and then completely kill my trade. Cause I would like reduce my average too much. And with, the kind of trading that I like to do, I like to add to winners um, to my price target to increase the profit overall without risking more than I initially wanted to. So I will still have the same dollar risk, but I will have way more shares by the time it gets to my price target. 
And there's a bit of a diminishing return in the sense that you can't just add nonstop. So the way I do it is I kind of just figured how much risk do I want to put on this trade, feeling comfortable where if it does hit my risk, I'm probably wrong. And so like, if I do it that way, um, you know, it's easier for me to just walk away because I feel like there's no need to put more additional risk on. And the reason why my win rate is so low is because I am doing that. If I wanted to just put on a very safe position, I could have probably seven, 80% win rate, but because I'm, I want those big winners, I'm willing to take losses more often. And for me that works out, but I do want to eventually scale that back to the point where, um, there is a relationship between risk reward and win rate where I do know that it is more efficient for me to reduce my win rate to, uh, or to reduce my risk reward, sorry, and increase my win rate. And I'll be more profitable in the long run. But um, I just kind of, my goal this year was to push it as far as I could. And I feel like I'm kind of getting to the end goal of that where, you know, I don't really want to start winning like 10% of the time. You know what I mean? It's like, I, I want to reduce stress over time. For sure. For sure. Brian, man, I really appreciate this, man. Like I feel, uh, I don't, I don't want to say, I don't want to say dumb, but I, I, you know, I appreciate listening and talking to you and that, like, I still have, you know, a ways to go, but it's encouraging, man. I, I really, I'm really learning a lot from this conversation. Um, I know you're familiar with the concept of loss aversion. Uh, could you, you know, explain this to the listeners for one, and then is this something you struggled with? And if you have, uh, what have you done to combat it? Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm not super technical. Yeah. But uh, with loss aversion, I'm thinking that uh, psychologically people take losses a lot harder than they actually, you know, feel the joy of winning. So some studies vary, you know, they say two to one, three to one, things like that. But uh, for me, with loss aversion, I feel like it's very difficult when you have like a one to one, because you know, if every loss is weighted greater than the joy of winning, then you're perpetually going to be in a state of despair or just feeling bad about yourself. Whereas like people might think that I'm emotionally distraught, but actually when I, when I know that I will win big, it does overpower the sensation of losing. And so I don't feel afraid to lose when I enter a trade. Therefore I have no emotion when I execute. So then I can just enter a stock knowing that even if I lose, it's not a big deal because once I do win, it will wipe that out. And not only on an intraday basis, but also on a daily and rolling weekly, monthly basis where I'm just pulling so far ahead by winning big that it funds my further trades. And just by gaining an advantage over my losses, I never quite feel like I'm ever really risking too much by entering and executing a trade. I feel like if people don't skew that in their favor, they will have the feeling that, you know, they hesitate to enter and exit trades. Whereas like for me, it's just another trade out of the next a thousand. And I know that I'll be profitable and that, and that um, statistic and that, and it's mathematically proven as well, just with risk reward and win rate. Um, it's to me, it just makes trading a whole lot easier. And that started for me to be consistently profitable with just starting at three to one and building from there. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. I just always, I'm fascinated how retail traders look at, at taking losses. It's, it's, I I find that whole, um, that whole thing very fascinating because I come from the business. So for me, 
a loss is the cost of doing business, right? It's a business mm -hmm. expense. So a smart operator keeps those expenses down. And sometimes those losses, like getting stopped out, you're paying for information. Because for me, yes. I'm a structure trader. So if the order flow violates the structure, man, you don't want to be in front of that train. That loss is pulling you out of traffic from getting hit by a semi, right? So we look at things like that because um, that's the way we were taught, you know, because it's a business, it's a business expense. Just don't lose too much, you know, keep it tight, you know? Um, and it's just very fascinating. And it's interesting how you guys have sort of um, – your way works. It's just kind of looking at it from another angle. Pretty cool yeah. stuff. Yeah. I can add on that a bit more. It's like, because I know that my average winner will be at around four to six, and sometimes it can be even as high as eight. And like last month I had a 16 R win because I went a uh, bigger size on the A plus setup. It's like, you know, even the largest loss I had all year was like a minus 20 something. It's like, I know that I can, even in the worst of worst case scenarios, like if I had managed my risk, I will, you know, recover that within couple trades and so like that psychologically helps a lot because like my friend recently was like wow you know you know if you have a 25 percent win rate uh your drawdown mathematically you could draw down 21 trades lost in a row like how do you handle that but the thing is like not all my losers are going to be one r it might be half an r 0.3 r something like that and losing yeah i'm gaining information because i know like that's not the right spot but in the end even if i lost like even if I have the worst day of my life bar like blowing up, you know, even like minus 15 or something like that, it's just so recoverable. And the thing is that what you find is when you trade this way, you're almost always on an uptrend. And like, I know that the green days I had before, it's going to be so hard for me to wipe that out in the future. And it just kind of builds on each other. And the only time that my mentality really shifts from that perspective is whenever I just reset completely on the next month, I'm just like, okay, it's clean. But like, on a month like last month where I had the 150 R that's like 150 full size positions that I could cut. If you think about it that way. And if I win risking one R for five or six R, then that pulls me even further ahead. So psychologically it's not that demanding. Right. Right. Yeah. You know, you, you say that Brian, but I think for some people it is, I mean, and, and that's why I really think like your, your gaming background, I mean, I'm sure you had to deal with losing, uh, you know, and it's not, that's not an easy thing. And it may be, I, you know, I don't know, I, I guess it's different for everybody. And I know like for myself, that was something, you know, and I know what you stress the, the whole mentality or the, like the mental aspect of trading as well. Um, because I think anyone can learn the strategies. It's the, the dealing with these things, um, that is tough and some are better naturally than others. So Brian, it's been a good talk so far, man. I got a, we got a, we got a few listener questions, uh, <laughs> to get to then, um, you know, just some kind of just like miscellaneous type stuff more about like you as a person. Um, all right. First listener question we got here. Uh, there has been a lot of talk about the gamification of trading as the next generation of retail traders enter the market. Love to hear your thoughts on this as it pertains to possibly new technology trading platforms and gaming type graphics that have, that are being developed. Okay, I think, I think in in as a gamer and just the word esport and things like that, I think it's kind of a buzzword in the sense that, you know, at the end of the day, gamers are are children, and I think what people are really banking on is that it's a 
industry that's potentially kind of like unicorn startups and that people don't really know what the potential is and they're kind of guessing. I mean, somebody who's, you know, only played PlayStation like JJ might not quite understand like the environment, but when some, you know, slick tech CEO comes up to you and says, Hey, you know, this thing could be as big as the NBA and look at it's in its infant stages. I think people really overestimate what, you know, esports really is. It's not, I don't think that, um, you know, I've seen so many people like try to invest in the business, like even like Shaquille O'Neal, I've seen uh, even like Team Liquid is a team I used to be on. They got sponsored by Honda and the Golden State Warriors. And there's a lot of money coming in, but at the end of the day, it's not like incredibly profitable for them. A lot of these companies do take a loss, but in terms of trading, I think a lot of people are like, oh, you know, you were a gamer, so you must be really quick with like hockey's and stuff like that. You must be really quick with your hands, but it's not really true. Uh, I mean, yeah, I'm probably more... I'm more adept at using the computer potentially, but I think that trading kind of has its own rule set. And as a retail trader, I feel like statistics are really important. I feel like um, a lot of things I share uh, with risk management are important, but I feel like more importantly in terms of gamification, potentially just the aspect of that I like to talk about is systematizing your process and that you can make it so that discretion gets kind of removed from the equation in terms of where to get in, where to get out. And so you can kind of have the computer say, hey, now's the time to enter. And you just push the button. And the reason why that can happen is because you're using statistics to fund the basis for that edge. And you're also putting in the work outside of the market to decide that if that's a, something you can use reliably. And maybe, you know, in the future, traders will go more into algorithms. I feel, feel like that would probably be the gamification of trading with platforms and things like that. But I mean, you see that, um, I feel like in trading, uh, I do save myself a lot just using my discretionary mind, just having the experience of the screen time. And even though I do trade mostly systematic, I do find myself making discretionary decisions all the time that I feel, you know, if, if my system was running on algorithm, it might be confused by the events because it can't take in as many uh, variables, you know, like, for example, things are kind of slowing down a little bit because of the election today or like sector momentum, things outside of the market and a system kind of just takes in the very basic uh, variables. And so like I can, as a human, I can gauge the market sentiment. I can gauge like my competition, how many shorts are, are winning or involved, how many longs are winning, um, what is their perception of the market? Is it really hot? Things like that. And so using that aspect of my mind helps inform my system and combined, I feel like the kind of bionic sort of trader is most uh, capable in this market, especially with how much manipulation is going on, at least in small caps. For sure, for sure, and I would agree, and I think a lot of others would agree as well. Shout out to Steve at Beyond the Trades for that question, appreciate it. All right, next question. Are you opposed to averaging down, and when did you know that you quote unquote made it, and that this could be a full-time career? What was the aha moment? Yeah, I, I really dislike averaging down unless you have it built into your plan, which is definitely possible. Uh, you know, the way to do it would be to have an Excel where you can kind of input predetermined entries, which would be scaling into a position um, because, you know, price action is not always to the T and sometimes people like to have wiggle room. And I know plenty of traders who are successful doing that. But for the most part, what I find averaging down does for the average trader, which is why 
I caution against is because, you know, emotionally it can be difficult when you feel that you can always bail yourself out of position. And in fact, that's the reason why I blew up in the beginning is because emotionally I became overtaken by the ability that, or by the feeling that I could execute my way out of a trade rather than accepting the outcome. And so you never really want to, you know, people don't like to be wrong. And in the market, you have to be wrong and you have to be humbled. And so like when people average down, I feel like it just gives them an excuse. Because the thing is, if you think about it, if you just cut the position and you get back in higher, it increases the risk reward on the way down. Whereas if you don't cut the position, you're trying to work yourself out. Worst case, it keeps going and you can never quite recover those losses and it balloons. And, you know, best case scenario, it comes down, but you have like a far less uh, optimal gain than you would if you just got back in at the highs. And in my opinion, if your system doesn't produce signals that give that gives you the ability to get in at those levels, then you need to just reevaluate your system. So in the future, you'll be able to just get in at the better prices to begin with, because then your starting point would be a lot less stressful. And um, for the question about when did I know I was going to do this, um, I'm, I'm like an all in kind of guy. So when I got into trading, I had no idea. Or when I got into gaming, I had no idea I would be a professional. I actually had no contacts. I had no in to the competitive scene. And my goal was to make it to the tournament the next year. So like what I did is I just developed a plan of how to optimize my time every single day and meet the right people along the way. And in doing that, I was able to be the second invite to this top 16 international tournament where the first team that was invited was the returning champion. So we actually came from nobody to number two seed basically. And in trading, it was the same way. It's like, I believe that as a gamer, it's similar odds to be at the top percentage. So you need to be better than the top 1% really to succeed. And in order to do that, I realized that, you know, all you need to do is put in time and be very efficient with how you're using that time. So somebody putting in three years, but doing it on and off is not the same as somebody putting in a year where they're studying 14, 16 hours a day. And so I use that to my advantage to inform the fact that I can develop the skill necessary at a much you know, more accelerated pace than the average person. And in that kind of lies my advantage. And as long as I could stay in the game, that was a big deal for me. And I feel like the moment where I felt like I could do was just basically like once I overtook um, some of my goals. And so for me, I set very modest goals like, hey, if I could just have a green week, if I could just have a green month, if I could just be profitable for this certain amount of time, if I could hit this dollar milestone. And there's just many milestones along the way that helped confirm that what I was doing was correct. Because if, you know, like one of my favorite books in trading is called Atomic Habits by James Clear. And what he says is that goals are not necessarily going to get you where you want to go. Actually, what's going to get you there are daily practices, systems, and habits that you predetermined beforehand that you need to do. So when I talk to you about how people I look up to are level-headed, then you would be practicing that behavior every single day, or at least incorporating behaviors that you need to acquire to get to that point. So like, for me, it's not so much about that aha moment, I can do this. It's like, if I want to do this, then I need to do this. Because like, you know, there are a lot of days I talk about where I don't want to review, I don't want to take screenshots, I don't want to do all this. And even, you know, it's arguable at this point that I don't even really need to do that because I've traded my edge so often, but it's like, I still do it anyway, because I know that someone who would be in my position would be putting in the work 
all the time. And so I just have to rely on the fact that I have a process and like routine every day that I kind of know that leads to success. Right, right. Absolutely. I mean, that's the same type of mentality that kept you, you know, you, you need to stay on top of like in gaming, you know, any highly competitive, competitive environment, because there's going to be someone else that's going to put in that work. Mm-hmm. Or, so shout out to Calgary, Chad, good friend of the show. Thanks for the question, Chad. Next question. And the last question we got from the listeners, unrelated to trading, but who's his favorite Dota 2 character he likes playing? Oh, I have a lot of characters I like to play, but um, one that's really interesting that I love to play is called Invoker. And just for you guys who don't know, it's like, it's a very complex character where generally in the game I play, there's characters only have four skills. So the character I like to play has around 10 skills and they all have different nuances and synergies with each other. And actually the way to execute is quite complicated. It's like, imagine you're playing a piano and you have to hit a certain chord. Well, if you hit that chord, it allows you to cast an ability and there, and there are, and you know, there are 10 combinations of the, those chords that you have to memorize to react real time. And so for me, there's a lot of creativity and there's a lot of fun and it feels kind of like you're an artist. Like it feels, like you're playing an instrument when you're playing that character and you can kind of express yourself in the many different ways because not everyone plays it the same way. And there are different kind of signature styles that people go through with that character. And I think it's really fun to play that way. Nice. Awesome. Shout out to Enlighten Me, another good friend of the podcast. We appreciate the question. Uh, do you still, are you still playing Dota from uh, time to time? How, how uh, frequently? I quit cold turkey for about two years because I realized I was wasting a lot of time. But now I do play casually with my friends just here and there. Um, nowhere near as good as I used to be. And a lot of people got better. So, it, you know, in a lot of ways, it makes me frustrated when I play and I know that people are better than me because right. the whole reason why I got so good in the first place is because I hate losing and I hate not being as good as I can be. So, like, that kind of brings back kind of, like, toxic <laughs> memories and i try to avoid that because i feel like i'm on such a good path with trading and i love i love trading i love just how it's just you versus yourself and you don't you can't if you don't want to pay attention to anyone else you don't have to you can just really focus on your process and like to me it makes me feel like a well more well-adjusted individual (laughs) sure sure i i can relate to that that feeling of just Cause it can be, I mean, being competitive is a good thing, but it can become a toxic, uh, thing. I mean, it, it, it really hurt me in a lot of respects. Like, like the drive, the drive I had for poker was really good, but also the consumption, uh, it kind of took over my life with, I guess, you know, I guess kind of how you could relate and what you were talking about missing time yeah. with, with family and friends, et cetera. So like, like with a lot of things in life, I think there's, um, you know, fine line of balance to be had. And, and I mean, uh, uh-huh. it's like when you're on that grind, like it is, I believe it is necessary to put in that work um, and, you know, more power to you if you can put in as much as you can. But at some point you have to kind of take a step back and recognize what you're doing it for. And it's like, um, you know, it, it's gone to the point where like my fiance, we've been together for more than seven years. She's many times through the relationship, she's, not because she didn't love me, but because I was putting so much into it and she, it was so uncertain that she felt like it was such a risk to her. And I feel like being put in that position is really tough 
for a lot of people, but um, you have to just think long-term and believe in yourself. And not only that, but like put some, put a little bit of work behind it because like, you know, with my trading, it's not informed by my intuition. It's informed by like actual mathematics and I'm not a big math guy and I never was, but like, in my opinion, it's pretty basic how you can um, look up different equity curve lines and simulations of how, you know, how you're trading with your average stats. If you put it together, like how, what is your trajectory? Cause something that's really interesting is like, I used to talk to traders here and there um, and just talk them through their journey and like, they would literally show me their stats and I would plug it in for them. And I'd be like, did you know if you traded this way for the rest of the year, you would be negative or break even with, and they're like, what the heck? And so they realize all of a sudden, like, even if they're perfecting their system and perfecting entries and executions, which a lot of people tend to focus on, like that was never the problem. You know, they have really great charts. I'm like, Oh wow, you have a great entry, but like they don't realize that by not holding to their profit target or not by maximizing their winners and not cutting the risk that, they're actually going in a circle. So you have to really understand like where you're going before you keep taking those steps forward. Cause some people just like to grind it out and don't realize that. Yeah. Right. I, you're grinding it out unnecessarily. Yeah, no, great. Great point. Great point. All right, Brian, we got just, you know, a few miscellaneous questions. I'll let you get on, you know, going on your way. Really appreciate you joining us here. Election night in the U S so, uh, you know, who knows <laughs> crazy. Tonight. Um, so Brian, you're living in California. Have you always lived in California and how are you enjoying it? I know a little crazy climate. I know the, the fire wildfires going on and whatnot. Yeah, I, I was born in California, so I don't, I only know English and a little bit of Spanish. I know more Spanish than I know, like I'm Chinese and Cambodian, so I don't know as much of that, but um, you know, California is great. I, I love living here besides the fact that now being a business owner, and trader that the taxes are absolutely ridiculous because California has the highest tax bracket. And, um, you know, overall I, I, I love being here because it's so convenient and there's a lot of nice places to be and I wouldn't really want to live anywhere else in the world, but you know, with all the fires and just thinking about paying taxes just kind of irks me a little bit, but, uh, I hope that by being a, you know, very meticulous business owner, I can help curve some of the effects of that. <laughs> For sure. Yeah, I'm sure you will. You seem very meticulous in your trading. I'm sure that transcends to all areas of life. All right, Brian, how important is routine to your life in both trading and just, you know, daily life? That's very important. I mean, like if there was a time where I thought like, oh, I'll just go with my fiance to her Las Vegas conference and just trade on my laptop. And like, when I got there, I instantly realized that, you know, I'm used to all these little things that I do every day, these little positioning on my desk. And while like people say, Oh yeah, you can trade anywhere. Um, that's good for them. But for me being in a state of comfort is really, really important. And when, you know, even if I alter my routine slightly, I, I notice the effects. So like here in California, I have to wake up really early and, if I don't sleep by, if I don't get in bed by 10 o'clock, then when I wake up, usually I wake up really, really tired because for whatever reason, it's like a dream cycle. And I always wake up from a dream and sometimes it's like a nightmare, things like that. Um, if I don't take a nap during the day, like just 30 minutes, I'm usually extremely tired during the day. I can't even function. Um, you know, the thing that I thought was really interesting was uh, there was a time when I didn't trade for a while 
and I took about a month off. And basically when I came back, I was like, am I going to remember how to trade? I'm like, I have no idea. But the thing is, because my routine was so strong, the moment I logged in, I knew where everything was. I knew what to do. It only took me about 30 minutes to get reacclimated to the setup. And it's like, I picked up, picked up as pretty much as nothing happened. And it was actually one of my really good uh, months after that. And I feel like that just comes down to routine. Like I know where everything is. I know uh, what to do. And I always say like, I feel that emotions are somewhat over you know, emphasized by the trading community and even the psychology aspect, because I'm, I consider myself pretty uh, easily influenced. I have a lot of different, you know, I have fear, I have greed, I have all those things and maybe even more than some people. And like the way I dealt with it was just by systematizing my process and making it less discretionary so that when I show up on the day, if I'm tired, if I'm depressed, if something happened, I can still execute. And that, to me, I think that's really important because like it completely eliminates that. Well, it doesn't completely, but for the most part, it eliminates that psychological thing. And like, if people want to challenge me on that, it's like um, my dad passed away two years ago. And when I came back, I was still able to trade. And it's not because I'm heartless. Like I was still sad, but the thing is I already knew what to do because I already laid out how to execute my plan. And so when people tell me like that their emotions are getting in the way, I always tell them to systemize the process because it worked really, really well for me. And you don't have to have it perfectly down to a science, but any little component of your trading that you can minimize and make more like, you know, let the computer do the work for you. That to me, I think is really good for your trading edge. Uh, beautifully, I agree 100% with everything you just said. You, Brian, you, you strike me as somebody who practices mindfulness. Is is that something that you do, or is this kind of? I don't know. Do do, do you? Uh, I don't know if I don't know if the way I think is just mindfulness in general because I am always in my head. I'm always introspective mm -hmm. and reflecting on things. But um, if that's not the case. I feel like I'm not that mindful. Like I've tried to do different mindfulness, um, you know, exercises like meditation, things like that, but it really just bores me. And so like you shout out to Kim recently. And it's like, I was reaching out to Kim because I feel like, you know, a lot of people, they try to practice mindfulness when they're down, but I feel like when you're up, it's also even a better opportunity to practice Absolutely. different behaviors and like improve yourself. And so like I was looking to sustain or improve my mental clarity by talking to someone like Kim and she was really helpful just being able to bounce ideas off of and like, you know, it was really awesome to talk to her. And like, in my opinion, that is something that I do lack because at times I, at times I do wonder like, what is it all for? You know, like at some point um, you don't need so much money. You don't need that much. And I'm not a very materialistic person in general because I, did live off a really crappy salary in trading my first year. I, I literally made my rent in my trading profits every month. And I did that for, you know, eight months or so. And so just coming from that environment, like I do splurge a lot now, I get, get a lot of DoorDash and things like that every day. But in general, it's kind of, you know, I recognize that um, you don't need that much. And so I'm wondering how people who achieve success sustain it and what they do it for and so like that's one of the big questions that i think about these days that now that the goal isn't to make it in trading it's more like how do i 
get to the next level and keep myself humble while doing it. Yeah. I, I, I got a comment. That is wicked. I just, I think that's really cool. I come from the eighties where greed is good <laughs> and uh, you know, we're here to cannibalize people, um, <laughs> you know, bring them into the slaughterhouse and take every last red dime. It's just, uh, it's really cool that you young guys are uh, in a different space because we were, uh, we were savages, man. That's really cool. It's really nice to hear. Yeah. You know, I, I, you know, Brian, I like, I really am in, impressed, man. Cause like a lot of these things don't come natural to me. And, and like JJ, you know, me on like a, a pretty deep personal level, um, you know, and how I can be my certain like ticks and stuff. But I also, at the same time, I feel like that's, why I was meant for these endeavors like poker and training because it, it's actually transit like the lessons you learn from it transcend life, um, how to act in certain situations. Cause I have to, Brian, I have to practice mindfulness, um, to, to keep myself in a neutral state, which I think is best for, you know, th these endeavors that we do. Um, Brian, what books have you been reading lately? Oh, I, Mike Delafiore recommended to me chop wood carry water and i've been i've been preaching that pretty consistently since and pretty much recommending it to all my friends and followers as well and it's a it's a great book i mean like it to me it became instantly my top three that i would recommend if someone just asked me just straight up and just to summarize it's like a hundred pages very short but it's written in a way where it's a relationship between a master and a student and the student makes all of the classic mistakes like overexerting themselves trying to you know push their limits physical exertion having uh you know toxic idea of comparing themselves to other people to wanting to skip the process like he wants to basically accelerate his learning cur curve artificially whereas the master's like slow down you know like there are lessons along the way you need to develop over time and it's like it really spoke to me because it's written in a story format where there's like a lesson at the end of each chapter. And I found that so compelling. I read it two, three times in the same day and I still listen to it from time to time and think about it. And um, that's a, that's a really great book uh, recently. And then just, you know, pairing with that, I talked about atomic habits for me, you know, you'll notice a lot of the books I recommend are not trading books because I feel like habits and compounding your success comes down to improving slowly each day and adding that onto the success of tomorrow. And if you look at every, you know, you mentioned how, yeah, you must deal with loss pretty well because not a lot of people deal with loss. I've lost a lot in my career and I've lost in ways that are kind of too ridiculous to believe. And at a point I feel like I should write a book about it maybe. Kind of like JJ's, I have so many stories in gaming about people just flaking out on me and screwing me over in like the worst way at the wrong time and like i just i just take it as an opportunity to learn and whatever thing comes my way you know like i want to figure out how i can develop from that because i know that if you develop yourself consistently then by the end of it all you'll be like almost superhuman type of gains in terms of um where you started and like those books really hammer in that philosophy which I wholeheartedly believe in. And just like kind of a small anecdote is like one time when I was a professional gamer at my peak, there was this little kid who asked me like, Hey, can you mentor me? And I said like, you know, he was like, can I even do this? And I was like, the only difference between you and me 
is that I put in the time and I did it efficiently. And if you put in the time as well, you'll probably get there as well. Cause I've seen so many people who over just years, they eventually hit it because they never gave up. And I feel like trading is kind of similar. And actually one of the people who asked me to mentor him, like I said, no. And he was just belligerent little kid and he was so cocky, but he was always practicing really hard. And <laughs> years later, he became the best player in the world playing for the best American team wow. with the real contention for the winning the actual, you know, Super Bowl of esports. And like, I always regret saying no to him, but like, I just kind of realized over time, like what it takes to succeed. And, you know, there are 16 year olds winning titles. And if you're, you know, like, what's your excuse? Cause they had less time than you. Then maybe they just played more, but maybe they practiced harder and maybe they learned from people. They were actively learning and just looking out for their own uh, education, just accelerated their curve. Right. Right. I, I, and I love that concept. There was a book I read a while back mastery by uh, Robert Greene. And he, you know, he profiled people of history. He profiled current day people who were considered masters of their craft. And they, they all echoed that concept of, you know, sticking with it long enough to give yourself a chance to succeed, to let the knowledge seep in. Cause a lot of times like the, the learning curve is, there's a lot of time we're just stagnating or it's, or it appears that we're stagnating until you hit a burst of like, almost like an enlightenment in a sense. And it's more stagnating, more stagnating. And that what most people do is most people give up before they give themselves a chance mm -hmm. to hit that breakthrough, you know, cause you know, some of us might be more inherently intelligent than the other, but you know, you keep at it, you keep at it. I mean, I truly believe that. So good stuff. All right, Brian, last question. Uh, what hobbies do you have outside of trading? Um, I love, I, I like to stream uh, little games I play. So like, I, I don't play as much of Dota anymore, but uh, I like to play games that I kind of missed out on in the past. Like, cause I was, you know, if you're so focused on something, you just feel like everything's a waste of time. But I feel like there are some games out there that are actually like legitimately, you know, works of art with a lot of attention and I kind of just pass them over. I also, you know, that doesn't really stop me from feeling like I need to compete though. So I always do play at least one competitive game on the side. So yeah. I'm always, I'm always playing something where I can get better. And right. um, that helps fulfill that kind of competitive aspect of my personality. And, you know, if, if we weren't in a lockdown right now, I would definitely enjoy traveling the most, especially with, you know, the resources that I have now. And I would love to go back to like Hawaii, for example, just one of my favorite places. Okay. And to me, just being in that environment is just so amazing. and so relaxing, like un unlike anywhere else in the world. And like, you don't get to experience that unless you travel. Definitely. Very true. I lived there for two years. It was wonderful. <laughs> nice. Yeah, it's a beautiful place. You can't be too far, right, Brian? Yeah. Home? No. Yeah. Must be nice. Any any other places, favorite world cities that you've been to? I, I love Japan. I feel like I feel like Japan was the kind of ideal type of city. I mean, I'm sure they have their, you know, social problems, but like as an outsider, you come in, everything's like you don't even need to speak Japanese. You just press a button, you get amazing food. The mm -hmm. trout like I feel like in Japan, the public transport is so convenient that I feel like I can go anywhere I want at any time. And so if there's something that I want to do, I just walk out my door and I feel like I can get there. No problem. And it's like, to me, that's amazing. And 
I love the food there. I love the culture and just like the way that their society operates just as an outsider. Yeah. That's, that's incredible. I, most people give us that answer. Japan, I, even people I just talk to in my everyday life. Um, <laughs> it, no, it's, it's incredible. I, I definitely got to make it out there. Yes, for sure. Sure. So I think with that, that's going to conclude today's episode of Confessions of a Market Maker. If you guys enjoyed the show, please rate and review it for us. If you guys want to learn market auction theory, market profile, trade futures, trade equities, options, join JJ and I in the lovely community at microefutures.com. Brian, tell the people where they can find you and anything else you'd like them to know. Okay. So the best place to find me and contact me would be Twitter at Brian Lee Trades. And from there, you'll see my pin post where I have links to several different things I do. So I have a blog, which has a really popular um, series detailing kind of my first, second, and third year and how I've evolved. And you can kind of really see how I've changed and also actualize some of the goals I put in there. And like a lot of things that I did to get to this point are detailed in that blog, as well as I have a YouTube channel where, you know, I don't, it's not even monetized, but I just do it because I like sharing. And there's um, a lot of videos where I do recaps. I do a lot of mindset. And then, um, yeah, like from there, you'll find everything because everything is all connected with the links. Yeah, absolutely. No, I definitely check it out, listeners, if you haven't already. I mean, one of my favorites, definitely, Brian. I I mean, I I picked up a lot, you know, just following you, watching your stuff. And so I really appreciate you coming on the kind words you've had for us in the podcast. It means a lot. JJ, parting words. Ryan. Ryan, it's just absolutely amazing to have you um, on the podcast. It's really, really cool. I really enjoyed it. You and I are going to have to hang out one of these days and I'll get you into some trouble. (laughs) (laughs) I'm looking forward to it. (laughs) Thank you, guys. Thank you for inviting me. I I love the podcast and I was a big fan. Oh, man. means a lot. means a lot, Brian. So for Brian Lee, I'm Paulie Walnuts. He's the gorilla of House Street. You stop, though. Music's not working. That's nah, gonna have to be a wrap. <laughs>